your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues. This is Don Watkins, and you're about to hear part three of three of my interview with Yaron Brook on finance. Let's get started. So you've mentioned how regulated these markets are several times. Let's talk a little bit more generally about that because that's really contrary to everything that we've heard, which is precisely these markets were not regulated. This was cowboy capitalism. They were allegedly deregulated during the 80s. Again, we can spend 20 hours going through every regulation, but just give people a flavor of the reality both before and then after the financial crisis about financial regulations. So so it's important to understand that financial regulations, as I said before, really existed from the founding of the country. Um, the first financial regulations come right out of, right after the Constitution Convention. And they're basically state regulations, state regulations on banks and states regulated banks. And they controlled things like how much capital the banks needed to have. And they controlled uh, whether banks could branch out and diversify or whether they had to be one unit banks, uh, which is common in many states where you could have only one building. Then in the 1930s, there were massive regulations on banks. Uh, uh, Glass-Steagall and other securities and and banking regulations loaded up banks on all kinds of regulations and gave them a goodie in a sense, which is deposit insurance, which basically says that the government, through the FDIC, will insure depositors. Initially, up to a very small amount because it was supposed to protect small investors. Today, they insure up to $250,000. Now, I don't know how many small investors have $250,000 in cash in their checking account. I don't know of any. By definition, you're not a small anything if you have $250,000 in cash in your bank account. And, and that's what they evolved to be. They, they evolved from uh, protecting unsophisticated mom and pops to protecting everybody. So as deposit insurance grew... The regulators got more antsy and said, wait a minute, if we're insuring all this stuff, we need a lot more control over the bankers because they might do stupid things. So every, ultimately, by the time of this financial crisis, almost every aspect of a bank's functioning was regulated. If you look at the beginning of a bank, which is, I think, a good illustration of this, uh, banking is the only industry, as far as I know, that... It needs approval to start up a bank. And that approval is based on submitting a business plan, which has to be approved. And the regulators will negotiate with you on the business plan. Uh, uh, a list of the officers, CEO, chief credit officer, chief financial officer, have to be approved by the regulators. Your board of directors have to be approved by the regulators. And your investors have to be approved by the regulators. Right? So every aspect of starting out a bank has to be approved by regulators. They'll even do an inspection of your facility and tell you if it meets approval or not, right? Like as if you were a restaurant or something. Um, 
So that's when you start. Then every quarter, the regulators come in and examine your books and make sure you're giving the kind of loans that you said you would give and, and uh, that, they're not, that you've rated them at the appropriate risk level and that you're not taking too much risk. And you can understand the regulators because at the end of the day, if you go bust, they hold, they're left holding the bag, deposit insurance, right? They have to pay up. So they have to, so they go in and they do all this stuff and, and, and their incentive is to be super conservative because they don't want you to go bust. So banks are... Small banks in particular tend to be super conservative. But let's think now of how many regulatory agencies regulate every bank. So every bank pre-crisis had the FDIC, which is deposit insurance, the OCC, the Office of the Controller of the Currency. Now, this is a weird one because the Office of the Controller of the Currency was established during the Civil War in order to control currency because for the first time since the War of Independence, Congress was actually printing money. So they were supposed they were the office responsible for the printing of money. But then when the Civil War ended and Congress stopped printing money, you'd think they go away. No. They just evolved into another regulatory agency that regulates banks, right? Then the Federal Reserve. Uh, then you've got uh, state regulators. Every state regulates its banks. And then you've got the SEC if you're a publicly traded company. So five regulatory agencies regulating every bank in America. Today, we've added to that at least the Consumer Protection Agency. And then, if you're very big, there's the Systemic Risk Commission, which regulates you if they think you have systemic risk, right? which is a very big bank. So seven regulatory agencies regulate every bank in America or every big bank in America, five every single bank in America. I mean, that's nuts. That, you know, we can't even have one regulatory agency. We need seven. So banks unbelievably regulated. Now, it's true that in 1999, that, that, go back further, in the 1970s, certain aspects of banking were deregulated, uh, primarily in the financial securities business. So uh, broker commissions used to be set, the level used to be set by government. That was deregulated. The interest that banks could pay you on your checking account was set by government, called Regulation Q. That was eliminated. A lot of stuff like that was regulated, little things like that. But the big pieces of regulation were still there. Then in 1999, um, Glass-Steagall, uh, one aspect of Glass-Steagall, one small aspect that separated commercial investment banking was eliminated. Or w w it wasn't eliminated, it was re-regulated in a sense that now you could merge, but you would have all these firewalls and reporting requirements. And, um, but at the same time, if you ask bankers during the 2000s, they would say, the regulatory agencies, those five regulatory agencies that were responsible for, responsible for regulating them, intensified their regulations of them. The other thing that people argue was uh, Congress wanted to regulate the derivatives market, and Alan Greenspan made a famous speech in front of Congress and, and argued against deregulating the derivatives. And that's true. Uh, and basically what Alan Greenspan said is, Regulators are not smart enough to regulate the derivatives market, so you better leave it alone. Uh, and he's right. Uh, if they'd regulated the derivatives market, they would have made a mess of it. So uh, the derivative, derivatives markets did as well as they did during the financial crisis because they were relatively unregulated. So going into the financial crisis, uh, every one of the major banks was heavily, heavily regulated. When, when Lehman Brothers and and uh, Goldman Sachs and the investment banks wanted to increase their leverage to 30 to 1, which is the leverage they went into the financial crisis with. They had to get the SEC's approval. 
So they had to go to the government and say, we want, and the government said yes. So it wasn't deregulation, it was government policy. And, 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 and government policy is what caused the financial crisis in every one of its aspects. Uh, I gave the two big ones. But in every sense, government policy is behind the, the, the financial crisis. Post the financial crisis, of course, regulation intensified dramatically even before Dodd-Frank, put aside Dodd-Frank, because regulators had an incentive not to let banks lend money, to control how banks use their capital, to f they forced banks to take top, uh, they forced ba banks that didn't need top to take it and then pay the government a profit. Government made it, uh, money on, on top. Why did they make money on top? Because they forced healthy banks to take money that they didn't need and then pay interest on it. Very nice interest to the government. So the government made a killing off of top, uh, but at the expense of the rest of the economy. Uh, so regulators tightened all the screws on the banks post-crisis. And then you got Dodd-Frank, which is this massive bill which regulates all, now all the aspects that were regulated maybe a little bit before, regulated a lot. Other stuff that was regulated somewhat is regulated differently now. But it's a whole bunch of new regulations to control every aspect. So banks are, I consider banks today basically to be public utilities. they run by the government uh, in, in name only. There's a semblance of private property there. But really the government to such a large extent is behind controlling every aspect of it. Every day about 150 regulators go to work at the offices of J.P. Morgan. In the building J.P. Morgan has, in the offices, next to CEO, next to CFO, next to chief credit officer, sit 150 regulators. Uh, and of course, this is true before the crisis. So um, government today, and unfortunately the bigger banks, are very much, um, it's very hard to separate the two. And that's what makes analyzing finance today so messy, why it makes markets uh, less efficient, and it makes everything less productive. I think it's a big part of why the economic recovery has been so slow. It's because financial industry has been hampered dramatically by regulations. You've mentioned the Federal Reserve several times. Explain to people a little bit about what it does, what its effects are, and what role you think it should play, if any, in the economy. So the Federal Reserve is, is, is America's central bank, and it, and it was formed in 1913 uh, by an act of Congress. It is um, theoretically a private bank, but it is controlled, and, and every aspect of it is controlled by government, uh, by, by the executive branch appoints uh, the chairman of the, of the, the uh, board that controls interest rate, that controls the functioning. Um, it is, for all intents and purposes, a government institution that is responsible for managing the money supply in the United States. Um, and there's a famous little video of Milton Friedman um, on YouTube that you can find where he basically shows what an absolute disaster this bank was. And, and he says it was founded in 1914, uh, or 13, but really started operating in 14. Um, it was responsible for creating uh, the financial crisis in 1920. Um, it was responsible, and then it was responsible for creating the, 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 the recession of 1929. But then it managed to turn a recession into a Great Depression. Uh, most economists today agree that almost single-handedly the Federal Reserve turned that recession into a depression. It had some help from Hoover and from FDR, 
but it was really, this was a monetary disaster. Uh, it created the inflation of the 1970s, and I would argue it played a major, major role in the, in the, uh, in the Great Recession of 2008. So the Federal Reserve from the beginning has been a destabilizing force. It was set up theoretically to stabilize the banking system. But the banking system was unstable because of regulation. It was unstable because of state banking laws, which restricted branching and restricted diversification. An interesting statistic. Since the founding of America, the United States have gone, has gone through 12 banking crises. Canada has had zero. Uh, Canada also has five banks. We have today 7,000 banks. We used to have 21, 25,000 banks, right? So we have this dispersed banking system with one bank on every corner, little bank, no relation, no diversification. And yeah, we had lots of crises because of the way we built the system. But we built a system from a regulatory perspective. This a market would never, never have a system like we created. Um, so the Federal Reserve was supposed to stabilize this. And instead, it made it much worse. There were more banking crises after, if you think about the SNL crisis, the 1920s run on the banks that created the Great Depression, and, of course, the run on the banks, which was uh, in, in 2008. The Federal Reserve has been a disaster. Uh, it's supposed to control the money supply, but you can't control the money supply. Uh, it is a, it, it, this is central planning, the myth of central planning on a grand scale. Um, the idea is we know exactly how much money should be in the economy. No, you don't. You have no clue how much money should be in the economy. There's no way to model that. The amount of money should be in the economy depends on the demand and supply for money, which is determined by individuals and businesses who have their own values. You can't get in their head to determine how much they demand or how much they supply. Uh, so you, you, you can't, just like... You can't determine the price of bread, and you can't determine the price of automobiles. The government can't do it. And when they do it, they always mess up. The Federal Reserve cannot determine, the, in a sense, the price of money, interest rates, or the quantity of money. So it can do a better job or a worse job, but it can't do a good job. Because good, by definition, means no Federal Reserve. Good means that interest rates are set by the demand and supply for loanable funds, which is set by savings and demand for businesses, and a floating interest rate, which is determined by demand and supply. And, and uh, good means that currencies are private. That currencies are issued based on a private standard. I assume it would be gold, but uh, whatever the standard happens to be. And, com and currencies that banks issue, competing currencies that bank issues. And then banks that do this well thrive, and banks that do this poorly you know, fail. There's a whole literature around free banking and how it works and how it has worked when it's been tried. But the Federal Reserve has no productive function in the economy. It is, it can only distort, it could only pervert. And there are a lot of economists out there saying the Fed should do this, the Fed should do that. But the argument really is how do we get the Fed to do the least amount of harm? And it's not even clear that that's really possible if you take a long-term perspective. Uh, and, and I think even like a Milton Friedman model where they only print so much money every single year and it's predictable causes long-term harm. And, and uh, a lot of these, uh, what is it, uh, uh, nominal GDP targeting and all, all the different economic theories that have to do with how the Fed should behave 
they might be better than, yeah, do whatever the hell Bernanke feels or Yellen feels like that day. Anything is better than that. Any rule is better than relying on the emotion of a central banker. And there might be certain rules that are better in some respect than other rules, but all rules are bad. All rules are destructive because all rules are a form of central planning that deny the market the ability to set prices based on supply and demand, but really it's based on the values of consumers and investors and producers and the participants in the marketplace. So as we get close to wrapping up, I want to go a bit deeper. You know, we've been mostly talking at the level of economics, but as you hinted earlier, your view is not simply that the industry is productive and doing something productive, but that it's fundamentally a moral industry in contrast to the idea that it's immoral. So given that this goes against everything we've ever been taught, how do you justify the idea that finance is a moral industry? Well, finance is, a, is, a, is fundamentally a moral industry because it is so productive. I mean, it is, it is an industry in which uh, individuals can pursue a productive goal in their life. They can pursue it rationally. They engage in voluntary win-win transactions with others in order to make money for themselves. The only way they can make money for themselves long-term is by engaging in productive, voluntary, win-win relationships with other people. Uh, so it has every characteristic of every other actor in a productive economy, in a free productive economy. Just in a sense, it's leveraged up. In a sense, it's, 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 what they do is more important because they have a bigger role to play. They impact production on a grander scale. It requires more reason and rationality. It's hard. It, it requires thinking on a grand scale over long term and across the entire economy if done right. So finance is incredibly productive because it's incredibly life-enhancing. It's life-enhancing to the people who practice it, and it's life-enhancing to everybody who's in the marketplace, who's participant uh, in, in this. So... Of course, it's difficult to explain because people are so removed from understanding the productive nature of finance, but also because our whole moral code today is geared towards altruism, towards the idea that what makes you moral is sacrifice. Well, financiers don't sacrifice. They make money. Or that our moral code is geared towards giving without an expectation of return. Well, then all businessmen are wiped out. But once you gain an understanding that profit is moral, profit is value creation, profit is an indication of increased productiveness, of increased uh, uh, efficiency, productivity, and higher standard of living for people out there, you can't make a profit without benefiting other people. Then you you start realizing that profit is, is virtuous, right? And because it's, it's, it's productivity enhancing, and financiers who are incredibly profitable are engaged in a virtuous activity. Yeah, I mean, the way I always try to visualize it is you have these guys who are just racing around all day trying to find stuff to take out of the hands of some loser sitting on his couch, wasting <laughs> it, and giving it into the hands of Thomas Edison and Steve Jobs. So it's not just the financial industry takes from some losers, right? 
and gives to the Steve Jobses and the incredibly productive innovators in the world. But then it takes Don's money, right? Don's not a loser, but he's not somebody who has either thought about or, or has the uh, access to invest with Steve Jobs. But by investing money in, in a pool, a hedge fund, or a mutual fund, or in the stock market, you become a provider of capital to Steve Jobs. All of us do. It's not so much that we take money from losers and give it to winners, as we take money from winners, give it to even bigger winners, and as a result, win ourselves. That it's, it's win, 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 right? We, the whole process is, is a virtuous cycle. Uh, that that enhances everybody in the process. So if I'm a if I'm a worker in a factory and I'm making a little bit of money and I'm making a little bit of excess money and I put it in the bank, it now earns interest. So in addition to the money I earn by working, my money by saving it, I'm making additional money. And of course, that money is making me an interest because the bank is lending it out to some productive activity that's earning the bank profits. So. Everybody along the chain is better off. And when that chain includes somebody like Steve Jobs, boom, we're better, all better off in multiple dimensions. Not only are we making money on the investment in Apple, but our life is better because we're also consuming Apple products. So, uh, it, it, and that's the beauty of capitalism. And, and you really, I think, get insight into the beauty of capitalism when you start thinking in financial terms and start to quote a famous movie, following the money, when you start following how it all plays in, you suddenly realize what a beautiful thing this is. And these are all win-win, self-interested transactions that are going on. And, and, uh, and yet the pie, the mythical pie, is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and and uh, so, so in that sense, you get a sense of how exciting finance can be when you really start looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, just for the record, the losers I had in mind were not the investors. It's the businesses that are wasting capital. True. That yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's a whole a whole other function of finance is is really it's the buggies, right? It's 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 but it's not just the buggies. It's the it's the bad computer company, and get the capital away from them, or it's or it's or it's uh, steel manufacturing when the Japanese can do a much better job at it. Take the capital from there, put it into Silicon Valley, and create the next type of industry. It's the continuous movement. Of, of capital for to its most productive, innovative use. So yeah. what is your view of how the industry defends itself and how it should defend itself? Well, for the most part, finances don't defend themselves. They, they just stay quiet, uh, and they, they spend a lot of time lobbying government to try to uh, get regulations off their back or to try to manipulate regulations for their favor. But they, they, they very rarely actually articulate a case for what they do. Instead, they give a lot of money to charity. They give a lot of money to political campaigns. They, 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 they try to drive humble cars. They try to downplay their wealth. Um, but you almost never hear financiers talking about the value. And if they do, it's almost, in economic, almost always in economic terms. You never hear a moral argument why it's moral, but of course that's true of all businessmen. The most they will do is, oh, we create jobs. Um, but they don't even have a more sophisticated understanding of the role of finance than the very simplistic one of venture capital. Uh, you know, uh, um, 
Mitt Romney, when he was running for president, was a great example of this. Uh, Mitt was, uh, was the CEO of a very, very successful private equity fund. And private equity is relatively easy to explain, right? You go into a company that maybe is not doing too well, you buy out the owners, and you improve it. You, 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 you turn the company around, you make it more efficient, you make it more productive, and you sell it, and you make a profit, right? Mitt Romney could never articulate that. He never actually said that. And he was blamed for laying off people. Yeah, you lay off people in an effort to make it more productive. Sometimes laying off people is the right thing to do. But he couldn't explain that. He couldn't defend it. And his whole campaign, he was playing defense on what an evil financier he was. And it was the perfect illustration of how these guys don't try to defend themselves. And even when they do, they can't explain what they do, which is kind of in, in simple terms, which is scary because they do it every day. You think they could explain it. But I think that they, they're afraid to because... Uh, um, you know, they, they get caught up in the technicalities of it instead of explaining it to the American people there. That is the third and final part of my interview with Yaron Brook. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 